this image of you in my mind on holiday of sitting mournfully looking out the window at 4pm <laughs> GMT on a tube it's Monday today isn't it <laughs> Monday going I'd rather be here with the boys telling terrible dad jokes 100% we missed you <coughs> we did miss I did I, I, I left the sun it gets a bit hot for me in Cyprus so I left the sunbed usually around 3 o'clock and a man who came back to the hotel room I like the hotel room because it's air conditioned I can see the sun outside the window <laughs> but feel comfortable and I sat there on my laptop doing some work Pina Colada next to me oh, it's the dream, I, love it? a pina, I love a Pina Colada and a man who came in and she said I don't know whether to be I don't know whether to be even more in love with you or to hate you even more. I was like, no. well, I don't, it's, you know, that's just natural. <laughs> it's a if trap. You, if you're going to rank, like, the quality of <coughs> drinks that you have, so they sort of say, like, a, a 7 p.m. gin and tonic before... Can we get all dinner. this, please? Because this is, <laughs> this is very know, much the content. Of it's high up. I would say that the Thursday at 5 o'clock, I'm really thirsty, let's go to the pub quickly, is a good drink. I would actually say the best drink is the 6 p.m. on the hotel balcony after a day in the sun. You just had a shower and you're about to go out for dinner. Just sitting there, taking the world in. Often checking emails. That's when I do it. Sundown. I think that's one of the best. Drinks. Sundowners. Yeah. Can I can I have an honourable mention for uh, roughly 4 p.m. <laughs> on a Wednesday back in the uni days no, after yeah, a hard yeah. fought away win against Man Met or something. <laughs> fair in the that's, fair that's, in the shower. Lovely. That's, that, that's a good. There's that, an image for you to start off on. That's good. That's, that's up the right. Um, I've got a new laptop because I keep breaking them. How do I turn off the settings on this? Right. When you're doing that, I'll intro the show if that's okay with you. Uh, welcome. Welcome back. We are on episode 16 of Taking Stock after the bell, episode 16. Uh, Johnny Raymond, James Hughes, the usual gang, myself, David Henry, investment manager as well. All sorted. All sorted. All sorted. Full steam ahead. Here we go. Uh, let's kick off with Gars because we've already sort of touched on it. Yeah. Um, standard life, isn't it? Standard life. Standard yeah. life. Gars funds. Absolute return. Is going to is going to close. Um, this was a big deal when it launched. When was it? Twenty eleven, I think. Twenty twelve. Um, mm. It got to fifty three billion of AUM, casual, um, and it's shutting with a value of one point four billion. Um, so that's been a heck of a turnaround. What what do we think about this? I've got some thoughts, but um, I've got a tendency to step on your guys' toes before you get a chance to say anything, well, no, so I'll I keep them for the you've, moment. You've got thoughts, Dave. Share them. Yeah. Uh, the returns from a strategy have an almost perfect inverse correlation with the amount of hype that it has at a given point in time. Well, this comes back to my kind of Clapham Junction billboard indicator, doesn't it? Whenever mm. you see a strategy or a fund being advertised Clapham Junction Station or AN of the railway station then you know that the top is in and it's time to run a mile and you this would have been there this would have been there back in the day 2015 not, not always immediately it can't be like directionally it's, all, it's pretty correct but it's maybe not on timing occasionally yeah. you're absolutely right like the more the more things are once you're hearing about it typically it's probably too late mm. for the strategy I would have thought but the marketing machine was fired up. They gathered up clearly. You know, they gathered a heck of a lot of money. Early the marketing results. machine was amazing. It was. It's probably not, a bit before my time. Not as good know. as equities. Better than cash. But when the market collapses, it will give you a positive return. It was essentially the marketing mm -hmm. strategy. So one of the first absolute return type strategies that I think our industry really started to buy. Because um, a lot of the hedge funds and things just weren't available. To retail, to retail. No, that's the point. And yeah. hedge yeah. funds had a decent decade in the 
hands, did they? Yeah, all the way from kind of, you probably go from 98 onwards. I mean, the hedge funds mm -hmm. had a good time through dot-com and through the financial crisis in the main. And it was a sort of bit of a new paradigm, wasn't it? The sort of absolute mm. return. But it, that, yeah, you're right. They weren't available to retail investors. You of course, the other, the other big reason for launching it was obviously th this was really the start of alternatives, wasn't it? Which is bonds give mm. you nothing. We need to find something to give us bond light returns. You're selling the dream, aren't you? You're saying you are. you'll get an element of the upside, <laughs> we'll protect you against the downside. Also, mm. there's the exclusivity angle, the JR's point of. Mm. This type of product hasn't usually been available to you, Mr. No. Common Investor. What's not to love in terms of marketing? And uh, I'd actually strongly endorse what James just said there. The popularity of absolute return funds rocketed when bond yields fell because the sales pitch was mm. bonds yields are falling, you're not going to get returns from that bit of your portfolio. You need to find something else in the low risk sleeve of the portfolio, yeah. putting low risk in, in inverted commas there because we know what's happened to those. We so, need to recreate the 60-40 and the 40 needs to be for something else. Yeah, basically. basically. And, uh, and I think that was part of it. Because bond deals from 2011 you know, just kept falling, didn't they? 2015, yeah. 16, they were still going down. Funnily so I think that's a huge enough, part Funnily enough, you'd have been better off staying in, in bonds. You would have been better off staying in <laughs> short-dated, high-quality bonds, James. Yeah. Until a few years ago. Oh, change the record, mate. <laughs> yeah. right. um, but actually, I have to say, 1.4 billion as a closing value. Still quite a big That's fund. quite a lot of yeah. money. I it, mean, it, I if expected... my maths is correct, it's less than fifty-three billion. But <laughs> <laughs> it is. But funds, I think, usually get closed when they. Uh, you often, you know, funds have dwindled to 40, 50, 60 million. I yeah. think one point four billion sounds just death by a thousand cuts. Well, maybe, it, maybe it's just every month there's more, and more, and more redemptions, and they just can't run the fund on those no. redemptions. The other, I, I think there's, we'll move on after this, so I think there's two final points. It, it got massive, and yeah. I think there's some yeah. academic data out there that says that investment strategies that become large struggle mm. relative to more mm. nimble, and in inverted commas, <coughs> peers. And actually their hit rate, so the success rate of their, their ideas that were profitable was 56%, which might not sound like a lot, but it's above the industry average of 50%. Yeah. Um, so actually, their ideas weren't terrible and that, I suppose, comes back to the size point. If you've got decent ideas, maybe you mm. aren't able to execute mm. on them because you're a massive strategy. Yeah. There's also this sort of idea of convexity. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you're, if, if you're right more often than you're wrong, if your wrong decisions lead to greater losses than the winning mm. ideas lead to gains, then you're still worse off, aren't you? Even if you've got more right decisions than wrong. I'm not yeah. sure if that makes sense, but yeah. hopefully yeah. it does. But if, you know, if you've got a small number of wrong decisions, but they cost you a huge amount because they go down masses versus your winners, which only make you a bit, then that's pointless. So now, the classic mm. example of that's private equity portfolio, right? Oh yeah, mm. oh yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. yeah. So you get two that go absolute, that are absolute yeah. moonshots, yeah. and ninety-eight that are yeah. So private not. equity would have a very low hit rate. It would be much mm. lower than fifty-six percent, right? But I mean, that's um, what James Anderson, Scottish Mortgage, always said, didn't he? Yeah. And he needed one or two out of ten to get right. He just a couple of Amazons, and you're yeah. away, aren't you? Run them for a long way, and it's easy. So it's easy, easy, isn't it? Just find a couple of Amazons or Teslas, it'd be fine. Easy. Um, SpaceX. <laughs> Um, <laughs> on the topic of looking for bargains, uh, the UK market, I think it's not fair to call the sentiment around the UK absolutely despised uh, a lot of these names. Um, one thing that seems to be entering the, the popular conversation a wee bit more is this idea of de-equitisation. Hmm. 
and reduced uh, reduced options for uh, equity investors in the United Kingdom. What we've got on, on screen here, chart number one, Alex, is uh, the number of companies listed in the UK and in, in Germany and in the US, and all three are, have been going down in recent years, but none, none more so than the UK. Amazing, um, isn't it? Husey, what, what are your thoughts on this? Because you, you've been so, around for a while, and this, is, this has been a trend for a long time. So I just wonder, I'm trying to see the date, it's that's zoom in a wee bit. Is that eighty six? No, it's not. It's sixty six. Okay. Yeah, I was so going to say more recently. <clears throat> I think cheap debt has to have something to do with it, and the number of privates and venture funds, and PE funds, because so they can afford to take, they can afford to run with these names for much longer. Um, we've, I just had, we've had sixteen <coughs> takeouts this year so far during twenty twenty three, and only one mm. IPO. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the I mean the chart shows the number of listed stocks, the number of listed companies in the UK has gone from four and a half thousand nearly in 1966 to a thousand today, and that's down a straight line, isn't it? Yeah. It's not quite so bad in the US, but even in the US, from the year 2000, there were eight thousand listed companies, and now there are only five thousand. So that in itself is a massive fall. I mean, it's quite interesting. We talk about how valuations have gone up over time. There's a really simple kind of supply and demand thing here, isn't there? If there mm. are fewer companies to buy and more people are putting money into their pensions or their 401ks in the US or their ICEs. Relentless bid. Yeah, exactly. There's so not you've the supply. Got, you've got, you know, more company. you've got fewer companies to buy and more people wanted to buy companies. Hasn't really happened in the UK. Hasn't helped the share Hasn't happened in the UK, no. no. But then on the flip side of the UK, you've had this kind of corporate pension scheme de-equitisation, haven't you? Mm. So particularly now, now that interest rates are a lot higher, since the year 2000, the, the typical defined benefit pension schemes equity allocation has gone from, what, 60% probably to mm. five or something silly like that. And they've sold a lot of UK equities because they've immunised and they've bought a lot of bonds to hedge mm. off and their kind of asset liability management thing, which I won't, mm. I mean, let's, let's not go there now. But, you know, pension funds, as in not you or my pension fund, but as in, for instance, the call to achieve your pension fund, if there was one, looking after defined benefit employees, they have been huge sellers of equities, mm. particularly in the UK. Yeah, and that so started around the millennium. I think we said a few um, episodes again when Emma was on that actually the largest owner of UK equities is now foreign investors, mm. over domestic investors, which is quite striking. But I wonder if that UK listed, whether that includes AIM as well. Because I think at its peak, AIM had thousands of businesses. That's a thousand, didn't it? Which, yeah, the listing, which, the listing requirements aren't the same, aren't they? And that's probably no, one the of other, the reasons. Yeah. Listing, listing compliance. Well, the other thing is cost. The cost of listing a business is so much higher today than it was a number of years ago. Um, now, if you're looking at a small listing, it's still hundreds of thousands of pounds by the time you've paid corporate nomads, brokers, you know, lawyers to put the IPO documents together. But I think the other the other reason I would say is people like for people like us it's much harder for us to invest in an IPO. For yeah. multiple reasons. One is treating customers fairly because everyone would have to do it at the same time. But secondly, there's not because of what the FCA and regulation has done, taking the IPOs are typically in smaller cap, mid cap names, but regulation has pushed us away from investing in those names to mm. large caps. So that's got to have an impact as well. I would have thought. I just—it's interesting you haven't had the same fallout from the US. It just shows how 
unattractive people think the UK. Well, yeah. But there's then number of listings, and we had four and a half thousand. Germany at its peak was only seven hundred. So, yeah, there's. I mean, there's not been a lot of IPOs to pick mm. from. Arm obviously have announced. I think back in March that there or was that Nasdaq. Yeah, uh, that they're gonna gonna go uh, go and list on the Nasdaq, which. You know, as a former UK listed company, it's a wee bit of a kick in the teeth it for the is. UK. Yeah. Um, but that's the direction of travel at the moment. This is Robert Buckland and the FT to your point about interest rates. James, even with the latest interest rate increases, UK de-equitizers, uh, UK companies can still borrow at 6% in the corporate bond market to buy assets on a stock market generating an earnings yield of 9%. Yeah. So there's a wee bit of a carry yeah, trade yeah. there. That's, you know, that's potentially what it still boils down to. But... Um, difficult to see how these trends, uh, those trends reverse. Cause All this points to a re-rating of the UK market. <laughs> well, it's just maybe supply <laughs> demand. Maybe supply demand. Oh, maybe it does. Who knows? Um, right, sentiment and price. We can't use the chart because we're too skint to afford the license. Um, <laughs> the NAAIM sentiment chart. We're not going to throw it up on screen, but. The executive summary is that market's gone down a bit, or it had done a couple of weeks ago, and hedge fund managers are selling equities again. Amazing, isn't it? US stock market fell, what, 5% in the early part of August? And investment managers, as in professional investors, people who probably ought to know better, got really bearish and sold a load of equities. And mm. lo and behold, at the end of the month, the market bounced back to being down only, what, 1.5% in August, I think it was, the US market. So, as we have said before, sentiment follows price, not the other way around. Mm. Um, and it's a bit depressing because probably between all of us, it kind of flies in the face of what we what good investment management is about, isn't it? Which is kind of yeah. buying when it's cheap and selling when it's expensive. I don't know. I mean, that's or might, buying might and doing very little. Or buying just yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of a lot of momentum type investors out there, aren't they, in the professional space that follow the popular names. Yeah, this comes um, back to the point about you know the hedge fund manager you see on CNBC who says sell everything. I mean the mm -hmm. point is that he he probably doesn't have a thirty year time horizon. He's probably got quarterly performance months, targets. Yeah. He doesn't want mm -hmm. to draw down in his portfolio more than five percent because that makes him look bad. You know his whole kind of raison d'etre is entirely mm -hmm. different to you or my pension scheme, yeah. where if it goes down twenty percent, couldn't care less, can't access it anyway. Well, so the best thing about markets falling 20% is you get to buy get stocks at cheaper each, levels. Each month, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just kind of a rather depressing familiarity with, with, with the world these days and the world of investment. I think you said a few episodes ago, the average stock is held for nine minutes in the US. <laughs> Have you just said that? The know. average holding period is nine minutes. I sell a lot of things using. <laughs> I will say this again. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure lo love a pina colada. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, it's my fave. honestly, oh, thousand wow. calories a glass. Is it? Yeah. It's all the cream. Wasn't it like Guinness? This idea that Guinness is good for you. Guinness, Guinness is having a bit of a renaissance again. Mm. It's trendy, isn't it? Well, it's wholesome, not, I suppose. Non-alcoholic Guinness is very tasty. Is it? I've never, I've never had any. I mean, it's fairly pointless, but it didn't taste too bad. <laughs> Mm, never had it. There you go. That's the recommendation of the week. Non-alcoholic non Guinness, if that's if that's your inclination. Um, we've we've had a bit of a go at the UK, so let's uh, let's mm. get some positivity in there. Um, fairly major revision to UK GDP yeah, growth, yeah, yeah. Um, rather than being down by one point two percent in twenty twenty one. The UK economy, the ONSA, actually grew by zero point six percent. That's a revision of one point eight percent. 
Um, wholesale companies and the health sector produced much more than previously thought is is the ONS's rationale for doing that. Um, I'm not I'm not an economist, obviously. This is why it is so 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 difficult as an investor slash pointless slash counterproductive to base any kind of investment views on what the economy may or may not be doing because the data may be wrong, it may be wrong by a lot, and it might get revised two years down the line anyway. So the the whole exercise is completely pointless for investors, in my opinion. I wonder how much that's had an impact on UK markets as well, domestic stocks. Well, it's completely killed the narrative of like the UK being the sick man of the world, yeah. because the UK has gone from being the less, most the worst performing economy in the G7 mm-hmm. since the pandemic to like middle of the road, better and than how Germany much, and And how much of that's held back business investment? Yeah, exactly. Because I know recently we've had a reasonable amount of business investment actually. Yeah. We're, we're still well below trend, but it's been a really good pickup recently. I just, the problem is, as you say, as much as we know, we should take the data with a pinch of salt and focus on the minutiae and, and actually from a micro level, it's, a lot of big decisions are based on the mm. data. You can't help but get distracted by it. And if the UK economy looks like it's struggling and, and you know, growth is lacklustre, then it's got to have a major impact on business investment. And, and in turn, maybe UK equities. Maybe it's another reason. I mean, front page of the FT, wasn't it, on Saturday? Um, big article about it. And it does make you slightly cross that they can get the data so wrong when it's their job. Yeah, it's a so weird, weird period, I suppose. It's, yeah, yeah, true. But when it's having massive impacts on business investment, etc., it's The GDP numbers, do we think, have an impact on what investors actually do? Uh, they shouldn't do. But if you're like, it's kind of like this point about the UK equity market and global fund managers. And if you're a global fund manager, are you, you're probably less likely to buy UK equities if all of the mood music on the economy out of that market is poor. Yeah. Is yeah. That, I mean, I don't think that's controversial, is it? No. No, and I think well, it's an it, argument yeah, for international why. investors because people look at the UK as 3% of Miski World Index and think it's probably quite easy uh, to ignore. Yeah. Plus the narrative around the UK is a bit rotten. Yeah. Um, as a UK equity investor, you know, you know the situation is a little bit more nuanced, clearly. Massively, yeah. But I think because trackers are such a major part of indices people just sell the FTSE 100 tracker and, and that in which turn, is particularly UK anyway no but that in turn has an impact on UK equity pricing mm. that's got to be it's got to be part of it hasn't mm. it yeah but if you're like a global fund manager global equity fund manager you're probably looking at the likes of Diageo, Relex and Shell in the context of their sectors globally. So Diageo you compare to Brown Foreman in the States or um, Brown Foreman makes Jack Daniels or Pernod Ricard in France. Mm. And if you're looking at the oil sector, you put Shell up against Exxon and Chevron and Total in France. You you know, so fun. I mean, you should do, but Shell tries a half valuation of Exxon. Yeah, but then if you've, you've got asset allocators who are saying we want 3% of our portfolio in UK equities and then they'll mm. go and buy either a tracker or an active manager in the UK and it's those guys probably will yeah. look at it and go do I want to be over or underweight the UK yeah. and, and begin yeah, in the same way that we look yeah. at like yeah. Japan yeah. or the US and say do you want to be over or underweight mm. and I guess most you know this sort of negative mood music that we've been 
faced with for the last number of years on the economy probably has had an impact on those mm. decisions. Well, it has an impact on if we're making investment in emerging markets, which mm. China's a big constituent. Does or does not include the UK? Emerging markets. Well, I think it probably does. <laughs> probably not far off. I think, but you look at China and you look at the data coming out of China, and you know whether the data is right or wrong, that will influence whether you want exposure to that area. Mm. Yeah. We all know that the underlying companies can do something different, but yeah. momentum and sentiment drives everything short term. Mm. That's the issue. Mm. Short term, yeah. Uh, the, the, um, we mentioned concentration in regard to the US a couple of times uh, over the last couple of episodes. This actually caught my eye. I was quite mm. surprised by this. It was in the Schroeder slide pack. Uh, five per sorry, the top five stocks of the UK market uh, make up 35% of the overall market. Um, the top 10 stocks, it's 52%, uh, which is much higher than in the US, Europe, Japan. Mm. Any other market really that you could care to mention? So if you don't he's, have, he's uh, going to name the top five stocks in the UK, and then for bonus points, if he gets number six to ten, <laughs> this is this is that's, <laughs> an, that's an ambush. That's unfair. Two HSBC, HSBC, Astra, Astra, Diageo, Diageo, Shell, and then maybe pass on the fifth because it's BP's close. Quarter, Unilever <laughs> must be close. Unilever will be there because that's about four and a half percent. BP and Unilever will be there or thereabouts. Yeah, probably. But if you're not, anyway. you know, if you're a UK Emma, for instance, mm, being mm. compared to the UK market and the top five stocks are a third of your index, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's quite a big call to, to not hold How big is Bats? It's top. Bats is about 3%. But half as big as it was six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was definitely Shell and HSBC, the top two, and Astra, uh, the, the, the top three. Um, well, Shell used to have two positions in the top five. Didn't they? they did, they <laughs> did. Um, but it, it's come back to this point. But if you're an active manager, if those stocks perform well and outperform the index, if you're an active manager, which happened last year, I did last, last year, year, which is how, why virtually every UK fund, yeah, active because it's very difficult to get overweight at a stock that's already six percent mm. of the benchmark. Mm. Most active managers, as we've already talked about in the US, mm. most active managers are underweight or at most equal weight the likes of Apple and Microsoft, which are big index constituents. Um, which may segue us neatly into the US market. Yeah, that, that will. I'm actually not going to go there next. I'm going to go to this one, which yeah. um, I know we've, we've talked a lot about US stock market concentration, but this is, this is astonishing. Uh, the top, the Super 7, which is, is infinitely preferable phrase to the Magnificent 7, which makes me want to jump out the window every time I hear it. Oh, I despise it, mate. I don't know why. It just makes me cringe so hard. I despise it. Why does the finance industry feel the need to make these little anacronyms up? It's just embarrassing. It. Anyway, Someone's sitting there with a pina colada thinking of acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> the top seven, top seven, the super seven US stocks now make up more of the global stock market than the French, Chinese, UK and Japanese stock markets combined. Crikey. Which do you want? Which of those two do you want for the next 10 years? I'll take the right hand side. Will you? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a value manager, John. You know me. I'll take the right hand side as well for what it, but it's the more out of, which, which more out of More out of uh, the right hand side is Japan, UK, China yeah, yeah, and yeah. France versus the Super yeah. 7. Uh, and that's probably as much more from a diversification perspective because on 100%. the left hand side you've got all tech plus a car maker um, which is fine and it's been brilliant and they're great businesses all of them but mm. you, you just, great businesses aren't necessarily great investments no they're not, they're not a great discussed. portfolio is it 
um, mm. necessarily. Might be. Um, happy to be wrong. No, you're absolutely right. These things are worth having, definitely. I'm I think not especially happy happen. for you to be wrong. You're not happy for you to be wrong. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, easy. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, just an, I do not need those, <laughs> those stocks on the left to carry on performing as they have been. I mean, it's, it's difficult to bet against them, but obviously... You know, it's been difficult in the past to bet against businesses, and you know, they've continued to grow and perform mm. fundamentally. But you know, the multiple hasn't kept up. Yeah, they're amazing businesses. Just you can on the see point visually that both Apple and Microsoft remain bigger than the entire UK stock market, mm. which is the green bar. Yeah, green bit of the bar. Actually, I just got my annual subscription from Microsoft, taking my fifty-nine pounds for my yeah. office subscription, which you paid without hesitation. I've got no choice. No. Exactly. Do you subscribe? Do you do the pro on Strava? Are you a Strava pro subscriber? I might be. <laughs> of course you are. I mean, that is the. I can see he, my. He, he would. He would be take the value bet here, and you're a Strava pro subscriber. I can, take, uh, the I, can least. I can take my. I can look at my segments. I know you can. Mate, that's very unsurprising. Is it? Do you like it? I've I've been doing it for the last year, and I've seen no tangible benefit. It hasn't made me any faster, which is very disappointing. <laughs> Is that not how it works? You threw money at Strava uh, and you take a minute off your 5k time? Oh, I'm a data person. I love the data. I know you are. Live for the data. I'm not sure there's as much data in running. No. And just, for, just for those gradually. listening, Husey's also wearing a Whoop watch bracelet. I am. That's which, another uh, subscription. Yeah. You had one of these, didn't you? I did, but then I didn't. Then I realised that I don't need a, a small band and to pay £24 a month for it to tell me don't, don't go out in the pints and try and get up for a run the next day. Transformational stuff, right? The, the worst thing is when it, it flashes red at you and starts vibrating because it reckons you're about to have a heart attack. <laughs> so I had actually on Whoop, so a mate of mine, um, who I won't name, uh, is is very into his training and things. He's very, mm. you know, he's in very, very good shape and he's got a Whoop, as you would expect. And we had a, a golf weekend at the weekend and he woke up on Sunday and sent us a screen grab of his Whoop. <laughs> Which had declared him, I think, clinically dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite amusing. Um, so, on multiple expansion, um, you said this. Through. I think this is from the Schroeder pack as well. Uh, James, you know, all of it is multiple expansion rather mm. than earnings coming through. But heard a stat during the week that if you exclude energy and one other sector, which escapes me, probably mining, probably mining, yes. um, earnings in the states this year have been have been positive. Yeah, is that right? So there hasn't been an earnings recession? Nothing there has. Hmm. We've Which had revisions down, haven't we, from estimates, but not an overall... Well, they're down on 12 months ago, aren't yes. they? Yes. But maybe not, maybe not calendar year. No. Hmm? no Interesting. I think no. So. Something to come back to and talk about in future episodes. Yeah, I think the multiple thing, but it's just... I mean, there, there is some... Yeah, again, we'll, maybe we'll talk about it in the next few episodes, but there's a reasonable amount of chatter around multiple multiples sort of getting to a low point, finding a trough level. Last two quarters they've remained fairly stable. That's quite a good indication that things are reasonable out there. It would just be absolutely astonishing to me if we it get through be. if if mm. rates go from zero to five and a half and there's mm. no hit to earnings. But eighteen months we're we're around the eighteen month time period of things of of the initial rate hikes actually starting to impact the economy, aren't we? Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Haven't seen it, it could yet. Could be a fun six months. Well, we've been sort of expecting it for a while, and it hasn't arrived, so people are still spending money. Yeah. Um, 
though there are some signs of weakness and Johnny you, you shared this with us um, we had a jolt report the job openings report in the US last week didn't we um, which was initially quite well received it's quite small there the chart at the bottom but historically what you see is the S&P tends to track job openings so mm. when more job openings are available or sorry less job openings isn't it and the mm. market tends to go down because there's economic weakness mm. And they've sort of diverged a little bit in the short term because people think if the employment market is cooling, um, the Fed will back off, and that seems to be what's driving what's bad, driving bad stock news market. is good news. Bad, bad news, news is, is good news. news is the way the easy way of thinking about it. Bad news on the economy is good news for the market because it means the Fed will not keep putting rates up. So I think so I think the market basically thinks that the Fed is done on rate rises, and all of the data that we've had in the last week or two, both on the job openings and we had U.S. And the headline unemployment data and mm. non-farm payrolls last Friday all sort of told a story of the labour market is kind of cooling from super hot, but still looks reasonably robust. Yeah. So if you believed in a soft landing, um, then all the data is kind of going your way at the moment. But then, I guess the flip side of that is all kind of proper slowdowns and recessions start with cooling from hot, yeah. right? <laughs> so this kind of idea um, could just keep going down and all of a sudden you're in a recession. Right? I, mean, so, I, mean, I, mean, I don't want to sound alarmist, but for the economy to fall by a lot, it first it's needs got to, to fall start by, by a, a bit. Little. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And, so yeah, mm. that, that, yeah, that's exactly the point. I think the, the big question is when does bad news become bad news? Well, uh, yeah, and, and, and 100%. And you'll... I don't vividly remember in and around 06, 07, 08, but there was a sort of soft landing narrative being peddled around early 2008. Um, six months later, Lehman Brothers blew up. Well, so, I think, well that know, was... A, but that was a... There was a sort of housing was so contained, you know, that, uh, whoever yeah. the federal, Bernanke said the housing crisis, subprime was contained and the economy was fundamentally strong. There was that sort of thing. And, and you know, not but saying... I think the economy was... Right, okay from a consumer and business point of view it was that the banks couldn't stomach the mm. rate rises as much as the consumer mm. and there's an argument this time around that actually banks and financial banks businesses well they can stomach higher rates than the consumer so it's yeah it's a different landscape um, of course again the biggest problem last time was banks just shut off finance and funding and loans to lots and lots of small and medium-sized businesses who could not get finance again mm. and they just rolled over whereas again this time I think central banks have learned their lessons governments have learned their lessons but also banks are so much better capitalized that you're not going to have that situation again unfortunately it is the consumer and it's the people at the lower end that don't have the savings to fall back on that are going to get hurt the most mm. and that's the really sad thing about probably where we're headed mm. um, yeah. And of course, those people that took on too much debt with mortgages and things and can't afford the refinance. Afford the refinance. But there'll be, you know, that's a fairly small Cohort. percentage. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, if I don't do, think it's the end of the world, but we don't it, know the impact of these extreme rises yet. No. Um, if we do avoid a recession, one of the pockets that is going to absolutely rip is small caps. Um, Johnny, you've shared a couple of couple yeah. of charts on small caps. Well, actually, it was uh, Hughesy pointed this out on Friday in our little WhatsApp chat. How the uh, the Nasdaq, the, the the US tech index, was down on the day, wasn't it? But mm. The Russell two thousand, which is the sort of headline US small cap, was up two percent on the day. So there's a sort of 
you get these kind of days where that sort of thing happens mm. when most of the time the Nasdaq's been outperforming everything else. But small caps typically are more expensive than large caps because typically they grow faster. And if you've got a mm. faster growing company, it should trade at a higher valuation than a slow growing company. That's kind of common sense. So as the chart shows, you know, historically, small caps have been at a roughly a 20% discount to large caps over the last 10 years or so. Yeah. Um, and that, um, sorry, that premium, 20% premium, um, and that has now gone to a very small discount, i.e. small caps look cheaper than large caps. Mainly because probably the large cap numbers are skewed by Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, yeah, and Tesla in particular. And we know how big they are in the yeah. index. So when Tesla's on 50 times and mm. Amazon's on 50 times, that does make a meaningful difference. Some but of still. Them, some of them, are, of course, some of them have cash on balance sheet, yeah, which higher which rates is yeah, positive. It's positive. I think you've had these rolling recessions in the US almost, haven't you, across different sectors, which really impacts small companies. Um, yeah, a lot of that's to do with the COVID and the kind of yeah. hangover from all that transport, logistics, yeah, yeah, and inventories, yeah. and loads of manufacturing yeah. and energy, and loads of weird stuff. But you've had smaller businesses are more impacted by <coughs> cost of labour increases, mm. financing increases. You know, you can't finance as cheaply as a small company mm. as a small company than a large company. So there's lots of reasons why this has happened, but history tells us small caps do outperform large caps on a long-term basis, yep. and you know you can't argue that this isn't an attractive entry point. You might be wrong for a year or six months or, you know, well, hopefully not for a while. Yeah. But I mean, at Finley Park, um, the fund manager at Finley Park, with whom we've had a close association mm. as a firm for 25 years since the Finley Park American Smaller Companies Fund was launched. I mean, that, that fund has morphed over time into a large cap US fund over the last 15 years. And they've been buying what they call mid-cap equities which in the US is between $5 billion and $50 billion. So in the UK context, that would be mid-range of the FTSE 100. That's what yeah, they call yeah. mid-cap. They've been buying a lot more of those companies. Yeah. And in fact, that sleeve of their portfolio sort of makes up a much bigger portfolio now, proportion of their portfolio now than it has not for a long time because yeah. those stocks look much, much cheaper than US large cap. And they've done a good job over 25 years of navigating, you know, around the tech boom, they were rolling small cap, which was cheap, and they did really well. Yeah. They avoided yeah. blowing themselves up in the banks in 08, and then they've moved to large cap through the 10s when the Microsoft's their biggest holding for years, yeah. um, and they harvested the returns on that, and now they're moving back down the cap scale. So, mm. you know, I'm not saying they're right, but it's just interesting how that kind of, the valuation kind of ties in with this idea of going down the cap scale noticed, potentially um, find some returns. I noticed JP Morgan American, um, which we know is a growth value bias, they also have a small cap sleeve and they've been increasing that small yeah. cap over this year and actually that's done exceptionally well even against the S&P. So I think yeah, some quite good active managers are starting mm. to dip their toe in again. Yeah. But I mean, if you get a recession in the US, small cap will underperform because small cap typically underperforms in a, in a recession, mm. uh, and large cap is generally a bit more defensive. So, but this recession has been coming for a long time. Do you not think that pessimism is in small cap already? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just. And that's, if you that, strip that's by, I just wonder how much more downside there is to small yeah. cap. If you strip out the big seven, mm. the market in general in the states isn't wildly expensive. I don't no, think. No, it's not. Um, so the thing, you know, it's it's a it's a weird market because it's skewed a wee bit, but people, you know, I've said this in the past, money has to go somewhere, and if you think there's a recession coming, you'll probably buy Microsoft and a what a two and a half percent free cash flow yields, relatively safe growing business, relatively safe, 
rather than go and buy some cyclicals or some small caps, which, mm. you know, most of them have been... I mean, look at the miners. The miners have taken a hammer on. Mm. Mm. No, I'd agree with that. You know, large cap quality tech in particular is a bit of a hiding place, and it is a, is a bit, mm. you know, a recession-proof deemed Utility, yes. recession. Yeah, even exactly. Even though it's not. Even though it's not. But we, when Ben came on a few months ago, we did talk about the cyclicality of tech. If Quilt Achievia are doing, of course, you've got A and other business are doing digital transformation program and we're mm. investing in loads of software, you know, if we get a recession, the chances are that the likes of Quilt Achievia will postpone that investment for a year or two. Yeah. So there is cyclicality in spending on IT. Yeah. So Microsoft probably not totally immune from a recession, but the market thinks it's pretty immune. Yeah. Okay. Um, great. Thanks. Done. Was that what we? I think we said three, like 35, yeah. 40 minutes. Was that Alex? Yeah, 40 minutes we, or so? It's because we're the third person, but. Oh, Susie's here. No, we're, under, right. we're under our stride now, guys. <laughs> like, we're absolutely zipping through that. Well, I'm glad we've got the white shirt. Um, white shirt brigades. Yeah. yeah. Should we do pink next time? I only have white and pink shirts. I'm white or blue. Are you? It's not It's not mm. blue shirt kind of weather, though, is it? It's 28 degrees outside. <laughs> no. No. I've got to go back to the desk. Johnny's celebrating on the. Rooftop of Cock Dodger as usual, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, on a Monday. <laughs> Pina Colada's on the rooftop. Classic. Classic. That's the name of this week. Yeah. Thanks very much, fellas. Um, thank you for joining us, folks. As ever, if you've got any questions, email me, david.henry at quilterchaviat.com. Otherwise, we will see you in a fortnight. Thanks very much.